What a joy to gather with uh, the people of God here at Woodlawn. Before we dive into the text of Scripture this morning, I would just like to begin by expressing to you a deep, grad, a, a deep sense of gratitude for the way in which you've responded over the course of the last several weeks in the life of our city and around our state. It's been a great joy to partner with a number of you over the course of the last several weeks and to serve our community and to serve our state. Thank you, Woodlawn, for doing what you always do best by loving others and serving this community and our state. It indeed has been a great joy to partner with you in that way. Uh, some of you I talked to you this morning said, man, I didn't read the email. I saw the subject line come through, just glazed, uh, breezed right through that, and you showed up. How many of you showed up the last two weeks, say at 9 o'clock or 10.15, thinking everything's going to be normal, all to find out, mm-mm, it's not normal. Well, thank you for being here this morning and for joining us. What a joy, indeed, to gather back with the people of God and to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to encourage you to take your Bible and look with me to the book of Romans. Romans, uh, in some ways it seems like it was uh, light years ago that we looked at Romans chapter 12, verses uh, 1 through uh, verses 12, chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, uh, and yet it was just four weeks ago. If you'll remember, Paul makes a shift here in Romans chapter 12, and he makes a shift to that which is more practical, if you will. He begins to flesh out some of these practical implications of this rich theology that he's spoken to us about concerning uh, humanity's sin, Christ's goodness, and providing redemption for humanity's sin and then the extension of that through faith in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so now Paul begins to turn his attention and focus to the church to live out this gospel narrative. And as he thinks about us living out this gospel narrative in Romans chapters 12 through the end, he's going to point to several implications. As we rightly understand the gospel, it shapes the way in which we live among one another. It shapes our attitude toward one another. And not only shapes the way in which, in which we live among one another, it also shapes the way in which we live in the context of culture and relationship to the culture at large. But as we rightly understand the gospel, Paul reminds us at the end, it also shapes the way in which we passionately pursue the nations with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And today, we turn to this first section following Paul's admonition from Romans chapters, chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, and here in chapter 12, verses 3 through 8, we look at Paul's first admonition for how we as believers must live our lives in light of the gospel. Notice what he tells us here in this text. We must live our lives in humility. Believers must live their lives in humility. And then verses four through five tell us that we must live our lives in humility connected to the body of Christ. And then in verses six through eight, he reminds us that we must live our lives with humility, connected to the body of Christ, using our gifts to edify the people of God. Look with me as we flesh this eternal truth out 
and how God expects us to live in relationship to one another. For by the grace given to me, Paul writes, I say to every one of you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the, many, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us therefore use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. You'll notice that verse 3 begins, even in your English Bibles, with a little English word, for. In the Greek New Testament, it's called a gar. That's the word for for. But this word has deep meaning as Paul seeks to connect what he is about to say to that which he has already said. Notice what he says in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect for. In other words, Paul is saying, in light of this eternal truth, based on this eternal truth, transformation that was spoken of in verses 1 through 2 is primarily seen, don't miss this church family, the transformation that Paul has just spoken of in verses 1 through 2 is primarily seen in our relationships with one another. You might remember as we went through chapter 12 verses 1 and 2, we noted the corporate nature of this passage We noted that sweating together in the gym. You remember that Sunday? No electricity here in the building. We looked at the truth from Romans uh, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and the corporate nature of that passage of Scripture. And Paul is saying, as we think well about how to live transformed lives, we live out that transformation primarily in relationship with one another. Notice what Paul says here in verse 3. Comparing ourselves to Christ produces humility. Comparing ourselves to Christ produces humility. Paul begins with a statement on the grace of God. This isn't the first time that we've seen this word grace used in the context of the book of Romans. And here specifically as Paul begins this narrative, for by the grace given, given to me, in some ways, Paul is making an appeal. 
to the church at Rome for unity based off of his apostleship. You remember that one of the primary concerns here in the book of Romans is the disunity, the difference that exists between the Gentile believers and the Jewish believers. The Jewish believers are concerned that somehow they're on the short end of this gospel stick, if you will. They're concerned that they're not seeing all of these Jewish people come to faith in Christ. They're seeing these Gentiles come to faith in Christ, and they're like, wait a minute. Has God stopped being faithful to his covenantal promises to the nation of Israel? And we've seen in Romans chapter 9, verse 6, Paul absolutely discounts that type of thinking, and he says, no, God has not been unfaithful to his promises. So Paul, as he thinks about an appeal for unity amid diversity, he makes an appeal based on his apostleship. I appeal to you by the grace that was given to me. We all understand that God has called the apostle Paul and a group of men to perform a function in the early church, to be an apostle, a bearer, to communicate those truths of the word of God that we now have codified for us in the context of the book, uh, the, the Bible that we hold in our hands. And Paul is saying, based on, on that authority that God has given to me, I want to say this to you. I want to make an appeal to you. I want to urge you with every bit of my being that you compare yourself to Christ. And when you compare yourself to Christ, that will produce humility in your life. Look how he says that. I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. But to think with sober judgment, each according to the, notice this phrase, measure of faith that God has assigned. Paul uses three very closely connected words, and if we were reading this this morning from the Greek New Testament, you would hear the uh, sound of the words uh, as Paul used a mnemonic device to communicate this truth. I'm going to do something this morning that I very seldom do for you. I want to read just a brief to you from the Greek New Testament so that you can hear how Paul is using these words in the context of this passage to help the Christians understand that their life is to be compared to Christ in all of humility, with all humility. This word that is translated in our Bibles with a number of, 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 of words, I say to you, to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought, comes from one word in the Greek New Testament. Isn't that interesting? You get a sense of the difficulty in translation of this passage when one word is translated with five or six different words, right? To think with sober judgment itself comes from one Greek word. So here, here are these words in the Greek New Testament, and I'll try to give uh, emphasis so that, you, so that you hear them. In main, may, here, here's, the first, here's the first word, hupair phonane. 
Huperphone, not to think of yourself more highly than you ought. Huperphone, and then listen how he, how he continues. Apophonein. Huperphone, phonein, a la phonein, ice, so phonein. Now you just hear that in the Greek New Testament. Huperphone. Huper phonane, 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 sophonane. Paul uses these four words, which are actually only three words, to communicate to us this truth. And he wants the readers to hear the sound of those words and so impress it deep upon their minds that they would continually live their lives in this way. Friends, a mark of genuine Christianity is humility. You hear what Paul says? If we're going to live rightly in the context of this gathering, if the church at Rome and all of their diversity, if they're going to live in relationship to one another, they've got to rightly understand who they are in light of who Jesus is. So I appeal to you that not one of you think more highly of yourself than you ought. As we think about characteristics of the world, it should be no surprise to us that in the world there are people who are filled with arrogance. But in the context of the church, it ought not be the case that any one of us think more highly of ourselves than we ought. It is the temptation of the human heart, regardless of the relationship, to think more highly of ourselves than we ought, is it not? We do it with our children. I'm the parent, I said so, do it! Right? Sometimes that's appropriate. We do it in relationship with our spouses. We do it in relationship to our jobs. I have more education than you do. I've been on this job longer than you have. Or, for the young guys in the room who have just come out of their education, you think you are God's gift to humanity and you know everything. So you can't wait to get on that job to tell that guy who's been working in that position for the last 30 years how he's been doing everything wrong. And Paul is saying, if we come together in the context of the church, and this is our prevailing thought, it's always going to create disunity. You ought not think of yourself more highly than you should. How are you to think? Paul tells us how we are to think. We are to think with good thinking. We are to think with, with sober thinking. We are to think with self-control. This word that he uses here with sober judgment was the last of the three words that he used here in relationship to thinking, and it's a word that we, we hear in, for example, 1 
Peter chapter four is Peter's reflecting on the return of uh, reflecting on Christians living in the last days and the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says to Christians that we are to live self-controlled. This is what Paul is saying here, this sober judgment. We are to think with self-control. Now, how do I not think more highly of myself than I ought to think rightly with self-control? Paul tells us here at the very end of verse 3, according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. According to this canon of of faith, this measure of, of faith. What is this measure of faith that God has given us? Well, I could spend the next 10 minutes with you articulating a number of ways in which theologians have understood uh, this measure of faith. If you want to have a deeper conversation, see me after church or this afternoon on campus. Suffice it to say for our time this morning, I think what the Apostle Paul is arguing here is that we ought to measure ourselves according to this measure of faith that God has assigned. What is the measure of faith, the canon of faith that God has given for you and me? The person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is our measure of faith. If you want to know how you are to rightly live your life, friends, don't look at me. I'm telling you right now, don't look at me. My wife isn't always submissive. I'm going to fail you. I'm going to, I'm going to give an outburst of anger from time to time. Don't look at me. I'm not your standard of faith. Don't look at your neighbor in this room either as your measure of faith. Don't look at your spouse. Don't look at your parents. Don't look at your best friend. Don't look at your Sunday school teacher. Don't look at the deacons in the life of this church. Why? Every individual person in in the life of this church is at some point going to fail you. But friends, there is one who will not fail you or me. There is one who will not fail any of us. It's Jesus. Paul is saying if you want to rightly think about yourself, if you don't want to be haughty and and arrogant, back yourself up against the measuring stick of Jesus and see just how short you fall. And this is a predominant attitude we are to have in the context of the body of Christ. To whom are you measuring yourself against this morning? Who are you comparing yourself to? If you compare yourself to me, you're going to find yourself looking really good at times, I promise. But if we compare ourselves to Christ, we can always see, I'm falling short. Isn't this what Paul is communicating ultimately in chapter 14? Look with me for just a moment. As for the one who is weak in faith... Welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. 
We want to be careful that as we read and understand this text of Scripture, that we're not walking around necessarily thinking that faith can be compared in quart jars or, or gallons. So we all have our, our quart jar up here on the, on the front row. You know, Kevin Bridwell, Joanne Bridwell. Of course, Kevin's is more full than Joanne's, right? We can't measure faith in that way. This isn't what Paul is talking about. But yet Paul is also acknowledging that there are times, friends, when we actually are weak in faith. By the way, this is why he's about to make the appeal in verses four through five that we so desperately need the body of Christ. Because when I'm weak in faith, you are strong in faith. When you are weak in faith, I am strong in faith. And we encourage one another. But if I'm coming in the context of the body of Christ always thinking that I know everything and I'm the only right one who understands everything and walks perfectly with God because my dress is better than your dress and my understanding of whatever book of the Bible is better than your understanding, guess what it does? Creates tension and dissension. And Paul is arguing for the unity of of the body of Christ. Our unity begins. The foundation of our unity begins when we rightly understand who we are against who Jesus is. Now notice what he says here in verses four through five. Rightly understanding God's grace leads to rightly understanding our place. Now how do you like that? I'm rhyming for you this morning. Rightly understanding God's grace leads to us rightly understanding our place. And where is our place? The body of Christ. Look what Paul says. Paul says that as believers, God has uniquely made us to live our lives in connection to the body of Christ. This illustration does not work for one who believes he can be part of the body of Christ, but not be connected to the body of Christ. Listen to what Paul says. For as in one body we have many members... And the many members do not all have the same function. Paul has really clearly articulated this, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He talks about some being an eye and another being a foot, right? He's talked about what what these members are. We can all look this morning and see what makes up the members of the body of Christ, the finger and the hand and the arms and the head and the neck and the nose and the mouth, right? So forth and and so on. For as in one body, we have multiple, many members, and all of these members have different functions. My fingers don't have the same function as my toes, My toes don't have the same function as my head. My head doesn't have the same function as my heart. We get that, right? Verse 5. So we, though many are one body in Christ and individually members 
of one another. Rightly understanding God's grace leads to me rightly understanding my place, the body of Christ. If I'm going to live out the commands that Paul has given to us in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, there is only one place for me to live out the commands of that text of Scripture, and it is in the context of the body of Christ. Notice how Paul communicates not individuality. He's not focused here on you as a Christian individually living your life disconnected. He's focused on the interdependence that we have for one another, toward one another. We are not disconnected people living our lives hoping that we might rightly understand God. No, we are independent, uh, interdependent upon one another. We desperately need each other in order to live out a Christian, authentic Christian life. You will never experience God's grace intended for your life disconnected from the body of Christ. This is not how God has made you or made me. We so desperately need one another. Now notice verse 6. 95% of us all in this room today have verse 6 beginning a new sentence. Does your verse 6 begin a new sentence? My verse 6 begins a new sentence. The interpreters of our translation have began a new sentence for you and me, primarily for ease of reading. But if we were reading today from the Greek New Testament, verses 6 through 8 is void of any controlling verb. Now, maybe you only made it through the 8th grade, but if you made it through the 8th grade, you all know that for a sentence to be a right sentence, you've got to have a what? You've got to have a verb. So thankfully, um, our translators for example, have supplied for you and me in verses 6 through 8 uh, some, some verbs to help us rightly understand this passage of Scripture. Verses 6 through 8, Paul is going to more fully flesh out for us what it looks like for you and me to live our lives in connection to one another so that he says, rightly understanding our place in the body of Christ leads to me rightly exercising my gifts in the body of Christ. 
There is no controlling verb that is given a demand of how we should live in relationship with one another, yet I think it is fair for us to supply these verbs so that we might understand how we are to live. So for example, look at verse six. Having gifts, that's a participle, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, notice the supplied verb. Let us use them. This is Paul's intended focus in listing these seven gifts that he has graciously given to the church. Friends, for every one of you who are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've been baptized, you are a member of a local church, God has uniquely given you gifts to be used in the context of the body of Christ. Now, all of our gifts are different. For example, I walked in this morning and one of our senior adults said to me, Pastor Lewis, I just want to tell you I'm so thrilled to be part of Woodlawn. It's just so wonderful to see what this church has done over the course of the last few weeks and serving our community. Now, I can't get out there and cut up trees and rake yards and pick up limbs, but I sure am glad to be a part of it. Absolutely. Why? God has uniquely gifted us with different gifts. We also are, are a diverse group of people in, 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 in age. We've got different ages in the context of the body of Christ, and so there are things that I can't do at 40 that I could do at 20. And there are things that you really want to do at 80 that you just simply can't do, right? But even as we journey along life, God at those right moments, at that right time, is supplying for you and me exactly what we need in the life of of this church. There are members of our church that can't physically even gather with us. But you know what often I hear from them? There are prayer warriors. They spend large amounts of time praying. In my first few years here, every time I got ready to go on a mission trip or to do something exceedingly maybe difficult, I would always call Miss Jenny Morgan and say, Miss Jenny, would you please pray for me? Why? I knew she couldn't physically do it. She couldn't physically get on the airplane and fly with me to India, but I know, I know this one thing. If I ask her to be praying, she was going to spend her time and her energy praying. And see, this is what Paul is talking about in the context. Oftentimes, we in our culture particularly think of diversity as being a negative thing. And, and make no mistake about it, friends. There are plenty of people who are profiting off of the term diversity to divide people uh, uh, from, from among one another. But Paul doesn't speak of diversity as being a bad thing. He speaks of diversity as being a great thing. 
our diversity is exactly how God has created us and desires to use us for his glory. If all of us looked the same, if all of us talked the same, if all of us did the exact same things, nothing would get accomplished in the life of this church. Diversity is an exceedingly beautiful thing. It's not a negative thing. It's not a divisive thing. It is a positive, unifying thing. Look how Paul defines it. Having gifts that differ according to what? The grace given to us. Now, Paul is about to lay out seven spiritual gifts. Is this a complete list of spiritual gifts? No. Is there any hidden meaning in the fact that he just gave us seven and not 10 or not 14 or not three? No. We also see a listing of spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians and also again in Ephesians. There are just a few in the listing here in Romans that even appear in any other passage of Scripture. But notice the foundation of these spiritual gifts. What keeps me from thinking that I'm better than anyone else in the life of the church? The word of God. God's grace. When we rightly understand God's grace, then I can't say, well, ha ha. I've got the gift of prophecy. Ms. Kendra... You just have that gift of service. I'm way better than you are. Those who have the gift of service can't look over at another person and say, Jimmy, I'm so better than you. You've just got that gift of being gracious to people. And I'm much better. I go out and serve everybody and do everything for everybody, and you're just gracious. I'm, I'm far better than you are. But you know what's interesting? What Paul calls us to in a unifying theme, so many times we take and we use it as a wedge of division. Because we can become more focused not on the way in which God has gifted me, but I become more focused on the way in which I think God has gifted you and you're not doing it. Friends, rejoice in what God, not this church, not this church's pastors, not this church's other leaders, what God has given you. And let's collectively rejoice with one another that he's not given us all the same thing. So what has he given us? To some, verse six, he's given prophecy in proportion to this measure of of faith. Prophecy is one of these understandings that are in some ways difficult to understand. It's hard to understand. At times we want to limit it in certain ways because others have taken this word prophecy and used it for their own ambitions. And so we have people that walk around with titles, prophet so-and-so, prophet Prophet Laramie Mingan, I want to be seen as a prophet so that I can tell you uh, that you have to do X, Y, and Z because if you don't do X, Y, and Z, then you're going against God, right? 
But how do we oftentimes see prophecy being used in the context of, the, in, uh, of Scripture? Well, we, we turn where Paul more fully com, uh, fleshes this idea out in 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14. And Paul uses prophecy, it seems, in the context of that passage of Scripture, that God has, has given this ability in the context of the local church uh, to, to, to people in the church with a unique ability to be, uh, to be able to understand and speak prophetically, profoundly, if you will, that which God has already communicated. Sometimes we just need a prophet among us to say, no, we can't do that. Or yes, we must do that. But one thing we know, whatever this gift of prophecy is, it is not equal to the way in which we see Old Testament prophets. Because Old Testament prophets spoke inerrantly. They spoke exactly what God communicated, and everybody had to do it. So if I stood in the pulpit this morning and say, God has given me a prophetic word that next Sunday all of us should wear red clothes, do we all have to wear red clothes next Sunday? Well, that's a misunderstanding of this gift of prophecy. How do we know that the New Testament understanding of the gift of prophecy is different from the way in which it's used in the Old Testament? Because we're told, for example, in 1 Corinthians, that you should measure a prophet's words. So, for example, I'd like to make an argument that primarily what is taking place on a Sunday morning is an exercise of the gift of prophecy. What are you to do with the words that I declare on Sunday mornings? mindlessly accept them and just do them? If so, you'll all be wearing red clothes next Sunday. No. You measure what the prophet says against what the word of God has said. But God uses the gift of prophecy to edify and to build, to exhort his church if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service and serving. There's a sense in which God has, in some ways, given every one of us a measure or a portion of, of these gifts. There's a sense in which God has given every one of us this, this gift of, of service. A passion to, to serve others, to do for others. Perhaps Paul is in this case, mentioning the office of, of deacon, for that is what the office of deacon in large part is doing in the context of the church. It's, it's serving others. But if you have that gift of service, then serve. The one who teaches in his teaching. You've been given an ability to understand the, the text of Scripture. You should exercise that, not for your own edification, I don't care how much scripture you know. You can sit at home all day long and pretend like you know every bit of the Bible, but if you're not fulfilling that and using that in the context of the body of Christ, you're not using the gift that God has given you in its appropriate way. If in teaching, then in his teaching. The one who exhorts in his exhortation, in some ways it's hard to see a difference between, for example, maybe the exercise of teaching or or prophecy and, and exhortation, but an encouragement. Some of you are just 
the most encouraging people. You have an incredible gift to to be able to come alongside others and just encourage them in the Lord. To speak kind words, to, to write kind things. You've got that gift, encourage a brother or sister in the context of the body of Christ, the one who contributes in in generosity. There's a sense in which, obviously, uh, God expects that the entirety of the body of Christ will will be faithful in giving, but some of you, God has uniquely equipped and given a passion for giving. And through your giving, this church has been able to accomplish a lot of ministry, not only in the life of our community, but around the world. And we rejoice that God has given that passion and desire. The one who leads with zeal. In the same way that perhaps the word used for service is in reference to deacons, the chance that in relationship to this word, the one who leads, it's the same, same word that we see, for example, in, in Hebrews chapter 13, when the Bible says that we as a church should obey those who lead us, an indication of those who fulfill the office of pastor or, or elder, the one who leads. Do that with zeal. Do it with passion. And the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And there's an extent to which all of us have been given the act or the gift of mercy. Paul uses mercy a variety of times, even from the very beginning of this text. I make this appeal to you, he talks about, grounded in this mercy and grace of of God. What is the point that this is a list, the seven gifts, and that all of us should go home today and take a spiritual gift test and find out which one of these we should do and show up next Sunday and, and start doing it? No. Paul is wanting you and me to understand that one of the ways in which we express our humility is by the way in which we serve the body of Christ. Paul is wanting us to know Romans chapter 12 verse, verses, one through, verses 1 through 2 the way that we live out our transformed minds is to live our lives in connection to the body of Christ in service to Christ. And so the question for you and me is how are you fulfilling God's design for your life in relationship to this church? How are you serving? How are you giving? How are you exhorting? How are you showing mercy? Well, one way I know for a fact that we can't do this is when we're not here. How do we know the gathering of the body of Christ is eminently important to the life of the believer? Because try as you may, friend, You can never fulfill God's expectation or demand in your life to faithfully follow Christ apart from the gathering of the body of Christ. And look what God has done. 
He's diversified us. He's made us different. He's given us different gifts. Why? So that collectively, we might make much of Jesus. Are you making much of Jesus in your life today? Are you making much of Jesus in your connection to the body of Christ? How do you see in your specific life you're using the gifts that God has given you to serve the people of God? It begins with how we think. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have given to us the Lord Jesus Christ as a measure of faith. And Lord, we confess this morning that we've not always used Jesus as our measure of faith. That oftentimes we look to one another for that measure of faith to know whether I'm doing what I should or or am I not doing what I should? So Lord, we ask this morning by your spirit and through your word you might enable us to live out our lives on mission with you in connection to your church. Would you spend a few moments where you're seated today and respond, reflect upon the preaching of God's word? Can you point to evidences of Christ's work in your life through humility? How do you view others? What's your focus when you gather with the people of God here? Would you spend just a moment and confess to the Lord those times in which you've thought more highly of yourself than you ought? Maybe you thought that you were more deserving of the pastor's attention or the church's actions than someone else. Maybe you feel like you're not getting the attention that you think you need from a Sunday school teacher, but so-and-so is getting more attention. Can you point to right expressions of humility in your life? Right expressions through the way in which you're using your gifts to edify the body of Christ. Maybe you think, Pastor, I'm not exactly sure what that is for me. And my response to you might be, I'm not sure either. But friend, please know that myself or Laramie or Travis, 
We're delighted to spend time with you, to pray through with you, to see how God has just already used you in the life of this church to suggest ways that you might be plugged into serving in the life of this church. In just a few moments, we're going to stand and corporately respond to the preaching of God's word. Friend, you can never live your life rightly in connection to this church being disconnected from Christ. If your life has never been transformed by the power of the gospel, you're not going to live out gifts. You're not going to walk with humility. Maybe this morning the Lord has shown you through the preaching of his word that you are separated from him. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Would you confess your sin to God today and trust in Christ? Maybe you have questions about what that means. As we stand to sing in a few moments, myself and Pastor Travis will be down front. We'll be glad to share with you how you can trust in Christ. Maybe you'd just like for one of us to pray with you. That God would indeed enable you to live out the truths of this text of Scripture in the life of this church so that collectively we might edify one another and glorify God. We would delight in praying for you. Or thirdly, maybe your response to the preaching of this service sermon needs to be, I need to be connected to a body of Christ. I need to be a member so that I can rightly live out my life in connection to Christ. This would be an opportunity for you to express your interest in being part of this faith family. Lord, as we respond to you now, may our responses be pleasing to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.